Welcome to This Week in Church History. We're grateful you joined us for a wide-ranging conversation about events in the history of the church. Here are our hosts, Dr. Michael McMullen and John Mark Yates. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in endless praise. On February 4th, 1874, Havergal wrote the famous hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be, a hymn that many of us and many of you may have sung in church at some point. So today we are going to have the opportunity to talk about Francis Ridley Havergal and this famous 19th century hymn writer and to talk a little bit about what it meant to write hymns in the 19th century and uh, how this has worked in the history of the church really well. To do this, I am joined today by two of our esteemed faculty at Midwestern, Dr. Matthew Swain, Associate Professor of Worship Ministries, and his wife, Angela Swain, who is Assistant Professor of Music, and I hear a rabid Havergal fan. So welcome to this week in church history, guys. Thank you. And it's really glad to have you. Uh, Dr. McMullen, uh, for our regular listen, listeners, is on sabbatical, and uh, so we are still working through trying to rope him in into episodes, but he can't always join us because he's off studying and writing and trying to finish his book, which we also are looking forward to. All right. So I grew up singing Take My Life and Let It Be. And um, there she has a couple other hymns that uh, I sang as a kid, Like a River Glorious. Another one, uh, I Gave My Life for Thee, was another one that I remember uh, hearing and uh, maybe not singing as frequently. Uh, really, just in general, who was Frances Havergal, and why does she matter when we think through hymns in the 19th century? Well, um, so Frances Ridley Havergal, you know, first, we we can characterize her in a lot of different ways. First and foremost, we can say that she was a devoted follower of Christ. Um, she was a woman who loved the Lord and who gave her life completely to serve Him with her gifts. Um, she laid aside many of her gifts um, in order to be a wholehearted, what she believed a wholehearted follower of Christ. Um, she has been called hymnody's sweetest voice or mm. the consecration poet amongst hymnists. And I think when you start to look at the titles of her poems, the titles of her hymns, it becomes very clear what the, um, what the purpose of her life was. So, for example, the one you just mentioned, take my life and let it me and let it be consecrated Lord to thee, or Lord, speak to me that I may speak, or Jesus, Master, um, whose I am, true-hearted, whole-hearted, or who is on the Lord's side. All of these, all of these titles give a very clear indication that she was a woman who was wholeheartedly committed to serving the Lord um, with her gifts. Um, she is. So yeah, you, go ahead. you you use this phrase consecration poet mm -hmm. uh, or or hymn writer. What does that mean? Because I mean, you're talking about these titles, but in the 19th century, that idea of consecration was such a big mm -hmm. idea. What what does that mean for our listeners who aren't familiar with that? Sure. Well, you know, of course, in the in, in the realm of the arts, the 19th century is really a period where um, where there is a very man centered drivenness to. Um, to point people through gifts to the individual. Um, mm. What is the what is the uh, the the artistic output um, pointing to? Is it pointing to the individual and to that person's proficiency and their technical prowess, so to speak? 
So I think when um, when we look at the hymns of and and really the life of Frances Ridley Havergal, what we're what we're essentially saying is that she was a woman who uh, who who was capable of of all of the things that her peers were capable and 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 the elite in the artistic community. She was known as a gifted singer. She was also known as a gifted pianist, mm. um, and she could have made a name for herself in those realms, but. Yet she chose to uh, forsake those things uh, for uh, really for uh, to, and consecrated her life and her gifts um, in, in discipline and honor and homage and to the glory of uh, the creator um, that she served. And so that meant that she made conscious choices um, in what she did and how she did it, not only in, in, her, uh, in the realm of private devotion, but in public as well. All of her singing, all of her artistic output was really devoted um, in consecration, in honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we think of uh, someone like uh, Havergal, did she come to faith in Christ um, later in life, or did she grow up within a family where she was always exposed to the things of Christ? And so her Mm -hmm. sanctification journey was much more just uh, she comes to Christ, but then she continues to deepen in her walk and, and nurtured in that environment in her home. Mm-hmm. Well, she was she was the daughter of a vicar, so she grew up in a ministry home. Okay, um, and her father was actually a gifted uh, a gifted musician himself in his own right. Um, in fact, I was just telling you before the podcast that he was a- actually offered a position, a professorship position at Oxford University as chair. You can't just be a you know, an everyday uh, musician in order to take that type of, uh, to take that type of role. Um, he was, um, so, so she was, so she was raised in a ministry home. She actually had two mothers, her birth mother, and then she had a stepmother. Hmm. Both were deeply committed women. Um, in fact, um, so she was exposed to the gospel, to ministry, to, um, to, uh, to churchmanship throughout her formative years. Um, in fact, there's an account that um, her mother, every day from four to six, would go into her room and uh, close the door. And uh, Francis thought that her mother would lock the door, and she never really fully understood why her mother was going into her room between four and six. And one day she got brave enough and she opened the door, and there she discovered that her mother was reading the scriptures. And she talks and testifies about what a, um, what a profound influence that was on her life. Not that her mother told her to read the scriptures, but that it was modeled. She saw her parents living a life of, of, of godliness um, in, in, in consecration, in their own right. In fact, her father, who was offered this position, um, was uh, actually turned down this professorship for a life of ministry. Um, and so she saw, I think she had this, this model before her, her entire life. Um, to answer the question about her own salvation, she, um, she, she had a desire to know the Lord um, and to be saved. And she really wrestled with this throughout her early formative years. And it wasn't until she was about 14 or 15 that uh, she, she came to know the Lord um, in a saving and personal way. Um, and uh, she wrestled with a lot of doubt and a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety, um, questioning, questioning her faith. Um, and when she finally was settled that she um, herself was indeed saved, um, we can really read into um, the, the, uh, the hymn text, Like a River Glorious. We can, mm. we can experience the, 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 the serenity and the peace and, um, 
the calmness that we experience as believers and the surety of our salvation. And, and so I think that's really reflective even in that very own hymn text. That's, that's really a beautiful picture, even as I think through the lyrics of that hymn mm-hmm. of, of how that could be reflective of uh, just the, the dynamic nature of salvation and, and what's happening. Uh, Angela, earlier we were talking uh, a little bit about how um, when we think through uh, women contributing to life in the 19th century church, that Havergal uh, was one of those voices that helped women understand part of um, the, the ministry to the entire body through worship. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think one, one reason that I'm a fan, um, among, among many reasons, is in her consecration of this, she was using her gifts exclusively for the church. I mean, that's why we exist as an institution. Right. But um, so she wasn't in what we consider a traditional role in terms of serving the local body, but she contributed much in that she was literally putting words on the mouths of the congregants who would then later sing her songs. And so we see the gift of music, we see the gift of artistry, and, it, and the ways, the unique ways it can contribute to the life of individual believers and then collectively as a congregation. When we ter- think of terms of the local church or the church universal, um, the kingdom at large. And so when we see people like Francis and we see people like Fanny Crosby, you know, they knew one another separated by the big pond and pen pals and encouragers of sorts. But we see this was an integral part of of the contribution of women in general to to contribute to Christendom in these unique ways. It didn't have to be the traditional roles that we see in the local church as we know them today or at the time, but yet such an important part in being encouragers to all believers and through this gift of music. And, and I, I think that's really important. Now you mentioned Fanny Crosby, which is a, an interesting uh, parallel here, right? So Havergal's writing primarily in a British audience mm-hmm. and Crosby's writing primarily in an American audience, but they're writing at the same time. Um, but both of their songs are gaining popularity on both sides of the, the big pond, right? Uh, both in England and in America. How is that happening? What is going on in the 19th century that is allowing this cross-pollinization of hymnody uh, across the uh, across the ocean? Mm-hmm. Well, um, there are many there are many ways that that can be answered. Um, I would say that one one way has to do with um, with publishing companies um, mm-hmm. and publishers. Uh, even so, if we if we come over here to America, we have in the in the nineteenth century uh, men who were gaining uh, popularity as hymnists, as hymn writers, but as tune writers as well, uh, like William Bradbury, mm-hmm. um, who penned uh, "Jesus Loves Me," right? Uh, the tune to "Jesus Loves Me." Um, these individuals had had writing contracts, and so they um, really, in many ways, they were able to to uh, find um, tunes or texts, excuse me, texts by uh, people like Fanny Crosby and, uh, and promote their work. Mm. Um, and so, uh, and, and, and there was a consumption of this. And so they were writing, um, yes, to, uh, to encourage the church, but people were wanting this material. And so there was in some ways a, consumer, a consumeristic mentality of, um, you know, if we provide it, people will, people will buy it. Mm. And so are they just buying it for their church? I, I think this is kind of foreign to us, right? So we, we think of hymnals as 
the the property of a church, mm-hmm. but it wasn't the case in the 19th century. That's the only place that you found a hymnal. No, they were published. I mean, in in in, in you know periodicals or publications. Um, I think even um, we have evidence over here in the Spurgeon Library that even Charles Spurgeon published some of his own in the Sword and Trowel, right. you know, used that as an opportunity to, um, you know, to promote some of his own hymnody and maybe the hymns of others. Um, and I think one thing, too, also to that we need to clarify is that when we think of a hymnal, we're thinking of a hymnal in our modern understanding of what, an, what a hymnal is. Um, you know, we pull one out of the pew uh, for those of us who still have those in our churches, but we pull one off the the, the back of the pew and we open it up and it's text um, sandwiched in between um, music. Right. Um, but that's not always how hymnals were. Um, that's not how always how hymnals were. Um, hymnals were primarily, uh, especially uh, in Watts's day and in the Wesley's day, um, they were primarily text-driven, um, and so congregations would have, they would have known a, a, a smaller number of tunes than that they could sing many of, the, of these different hymns by. So there was an, an element of the oral tradition um, that was passed down. Yes, there were tunesmiths and people who were writing tunes and composing tunes, but by and large, the hymn as we under the hymnal as we understand it today is is a little bit different. Um, but the 19th century, we see this kind of this burgeoning of uh, you know. Um, the hymn is gaining popularity uh, with modern romantic poetry, and all, all of these things are kind of contributing to kind of have this explosion um, on the scene. So in 19th century, we are dealing with romanticism yeah. at, at large. Sure. What does that do to the shaping of tone in the songs, the shaping mm-hmm. of themes in mm-hmm. the songs? I, I, I used to sit with a, um, a friend of mine in chapel at a different institution, and, and when they would play, we would have a guessing game of when was this song written based mm-hmm. on tonal uh, patterns and on theme. And uh, yeah. we, we get pretty close uh, a lot of times just because there's some patterns. That are- our, our music theory students are cringing because this is what they do when some of, you know, when they learn, they learn how to recognize tunes and how to uh-huh. recognize certain motifs and how to hear the chord progressions, and that has many implications, you know, in their musicianship in the church. Yeah, certainly we could do a. I mean, an exhaustive study could be done on the text alone, on the poetry, and what what the, uh, you know, what the, what's what's the result there of nineteenth century poetry, and the same could be said for nineteenth century tune writing and harmonizations and understanding of uh, you know harmony, and uh, it gradually becomes more chromatic and more complex during the nineteenth century. Um, but when we look at the poetry, particularly, um, because I think that's where we ought to start, right. um, is with the poetry. Um, the, the poetry of the 19th century is, is absolutely more, what I would say, subjective. Um, it's mm. more, uh, th- there's more emphasis on personal experience, um, personal relationship, uh, individuals' personal relationships with the Lord, certainly uh, influenced by, um, by theology. Right. Um, but really trying to take um, this idea of personal experience and, uh, and, and, and uh, rich theology and combine the two into a, a form that is um, attainable, understandable, um, and singable by the, um, by the everyday person. Um, mm-hmm. And so, these, so, so more personal expression, um, the language is more flowery. Yes. Um, you know, 
And so, so I think this is very, very common in the 19th century. Now, you mentioned earlier that uh, Havergal, though, bucked some of the trend in her lyrics um, by trying to move away from so much kind of individual pieces to try to reflect on more on the Savior and in her themes. Uh, one uh, historian basically said she was a Calvinist uh, just mm-hmm. In her poetry and songs, she softened um, some aspects, but overall personally remained very committed to uh, a Calvinistic understanding of, uh, of the universe. So how does that Absolutely. work out in her hymns? Well, I think what you see in her hymns are um, an expression of a, a, a personal love for the Lord Mm-hmm. A joy of salvation. I, I, you know, I think what you see in the 19th century hymn is a, a broader range of emotion um, and personal connection. Um, yeah, absolutely. So her theological bent was more Calvinistic, um, but um, she she tended to um, she tended to talk about in her texts how salvation was all through uh, the was the work of Christ and was. Uh, was the merit of the Savior, and um, and yet it it was available to all, and which is why she has a really strong um, evangelical emphasis uh, in her own text writing as well. But I think really what you see just broadly, taking a, a you know a broad s- uh, stroke across um, hymnology of the 19th century, you just definitely see this more evangelical stream. There was also a a parallel churchly stream that was much more. Um, you know, dogmatic in its um, theological language, less uh, less subjective, more objective. Um, but with this with this evangelical stream, you see a lot more. Uh, uh, you see more hints of personal experience um, and um, just more subjective emotion um, embedded in the text. And and you mentioned here that her understanding of salvation available. Um, she was a passionate supporter of missions. Mm. Uh, and growing up with an Anglican tradition, uh, her, kind of her favorite organization was the, the Church Mission Society, which sent missionaries literally around the world mm. uh, in the 19th century with amazing results uh, globally. Um, how is she really nourishing even that, uh, that idea of missions? And where is that kind of working itself out in her life and work that we're able to observe? Well, I think that, you know, as we know, theology leads to doxology, and that isn't just limited and and on Sunday morning in our mm-hmm. congregational singing, or it's the what I call Shekinah moments at the kitchen sink when we can't help but <laughs> praise, you know, and I'm sitting there doing dishes and thinking about the practical outpouring, like what the Spirit is doing in me as a result of being in the Word and and all and and you know we see in terms of her involvement with this or uh, let me just take a step back and say that I know that as she began to give things toward the end of her life which was a short life of course what she died at age we say 42, 42 yeah um and as she began to give things away again that we come back to that consecration the result of her love for the lord a growing love for the lord over a relatively short period of time in her in her life um, doesn't just find itself being emoted through the text she writes or the music that she composes, but we see it as a part of her everyday life and that um, 
and her humility of giving her possessions away. I mean, she was a woman of means. I don't know to what extent, but again, in this society, you can't be, we, one would, would gather and assume that, as we discussed earlier, even before the podcast, that just generally, um, you know, probably, I don't know if she came from money, but just experience, not experientially, but just in terms of um, her family had means and you, you needed to, to be a musician in those days right. and all. But she then, she took her own song, for instance, um, and she would read this devotionally, it's been said of her, and she would learn from her own lyrics. And as she would digest those, for instance, take my silver and my gold, not a mite with I w- would I withhold. Those lyrics, literally, as it's been said of her in some biographical information, that, that, that those very lyrics of her own, penned by her own hand, were the inspiration for her to give all. She owned a lot of jewelry, from my understanding, mm-hmm. a lot of expensive items, I guess, from just the culture of her family. And she began to give everything away to this church mission society yep. as a result. And that was doxology, yeah. you know, a giving away, using her life even in non-musical ways, uh, because it's, it's the totality of our life and giving in service to the Lord. So it wasn't just her musicianship that was consecrated. She was willing to give all, and in this mm-hmm. case, eventually mm-hmm. even giving this to the church um, mission society is I think that was the name of it, yep. but um, giving that away too. So consecrated in every way. In other words, take my whole life, Lord, not just my musicianship. Nothing would I withhold. I'm even giving all these brooches and these riches away to support your kingdom work. Yeah. And according to the Church Mission Society, she gave over 50 items uh, of immense value. There was others that were not uh, of as much value, but that they were able to utilize uh, either functionally as furniture or other kinds of things, or uh, to sell and to be able to uh, further the cause of Christ globally. Now, um, she never married. Mm. And she actually, you know, we think of Fanny Crosby, we're well aware of her blindness and some of the limitations that she had. Uh, Havergal herself never was a very well person either. Um, according to one biographer, she she spent some of her time in Switzerland to try to get healthy and just never quite had full health. Mm. Uh, when we read of people um, who are key leaders within the church without uh, strong health, it, this seems to be such a consistent thing, especially in the 19th century, between a lack of full health and this complete devotion of God. How do we see that in some of Havergal's writings and mm. songs? Mm. Well, um, you know, I did read, and I don't. I, I may be um, incorrect on this, but I I read that she did have a love interest, but that uh. her love interest was not fully devoted to Christ, uh. and so because of that, she chose um, not to, um, you know, continue on in that relationship. Again, it just, you know, I think another. It's just another indication that a life of that that, that this is. Uh, a life of full devotion often comes with cost mm. um, and sacrifice, and um, and she was willing to make that. She was willing to make that sacrifice. Um, you know, I think um, as far as you know, how did her life and um, her her health affect her hymns? I think when you, I, I can't I can't speak to that from a historical perspective. Um. I can maybe speak to it more um, on, on a just a more personal way and try to connect with that. I think um, when we experience suffering, 
um, we in those moments as believers, I think we are we are dependent upon the Lord, and in a way we're not we might not be otherwise. Mm. Um, and it's often in those seasons that the Lord makes Himself very clear and real to us, and helps us to see what our priorities are. Um, and I, I I can only imagine that um, you know in the life of a woman like Fanny Crosby who could not see. Um, certainly the, the disability there for Fanny did not ever stop her. In fact, right. <laughs> if you knew Fanny Crosby, like she was out and about and, uh, making a difference. She was, uh, you know, trying to connect with leaders, um, at, in the Capitol and trying to legislate right. for education and doing all this kind of <laughs> stuff. Um, you know, f- I think the the difference maybe with, with Francis is that her life was a life of quiet service and contemplation to mm-hmm. the Lord. Um, so, um, I think she was probably very introspective, very reflective, very prayerful. Um, she was a woman of the word mm-hmm. and, of, and of course, um, you know, Fanny Crosby had to memorize because of her disability. Correct. But Francis, you know, was not limited by sight, but it is said of her that she memorized, um, almost the entire new Testament. She memorized, um, Psalms, the Proverbs and the minor prophets. Um, and to have that, and she memorized that at an early age. And, you know, and I, I think of work to do. Yeah, right. Right. Don't we all? <laughs> yeah. I think I'm a little behind in that area. Um, you know, and I think, you know, I, I think what it, what it just reveals uh, to us, um, and especially in the language and the, the poetic output and the devotional expression is that I, I just don't think that you can have that kind of expression unless you you are in the word and you abide mm-hmm. in the word um it's obvious that it's obvious that she she was a woman of the word um and knew it intimately it was written on her heart and um, that combined with suffering yeah and that combined suffering with seals the deal <laughs> that combined with suffering seals it and you know it's even it, you know many of us would look at something like giving away our jewels giving away our prized possessions and see that as a that that for many of us would be suffering i you know, I don't think know that that yeah. really counts in in some ways as as real real suffering. But for her, it was a joy. She testified that it was a joy filled yep. experience. Yep. And how you know how our perspective is changed when um, I think when we live fully devoted for the Lord. Mm. You know how encouraging that is. What a challenge that is for us. Absolutely. You know, we we struggle to give up ba- basic daily necessities. I mean, you know. Um, I think we've even learned that in COVID is just we we have felt inconvenienced by by small things, right? Um, but here we we see um, men and women who suffered greatly, um, gave up great things uh, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ, um, and did so with a joyful um, and hope filled attitude. What an encouragement and um, you know motivation that is to me as a believer. Absolutely. Thank you both for joining me for this conversation. Uh, about Francis Havergal. And uh, if you want to know more, there are plenty of literature uh, on her stories, even on the web. I encourage you to, to do that. Um, she died at the age of 42, as we mentioned earlier, on the 3rd of June in 1879 in Wales. She died of severe abdominal issues. Um, she suffered her whole life with some concerns there, probably something in our era that would be treatable, Absolutely. Um, but in her era w- was not. I'm going to close with one of her own poems that was a a prayer that uh, actually was popular uh, as a print that people had up in their homes 
uh, just to re- to remind them of uh, the love of Christ. She wrote this, Far on the mountain bright they grew, each vivid tint so bright, anew, and fair imprint of the once pierced feet, a token sweet, spent very tenderly, that Jesus lives and loves and cares for thee. Thanks for joining us, listener, and we will see you next week on This Week in Church History.